Coming up on today's edition of the Tomahawk Show, is Antonio Brown on the move from Pittsburgh? Why are so many coaches being fired and no GMs? Plus, we take a look back at what was a wild and entertaining 2018 Cleveland Brown season. Plus, ESPN's Mina Kimes joins the show to break down everything happening during Wildcard Weekend. All that and more on another jam-packed edition of the Tomahawk Show. Joe, got season tickets last year for the first time ever. Got to watch history, 0-16 season. Got to watch the uh, snap streak in. <laughs> Joe Hawk yourself. Hey, Joe Hawk, Nat and Therm. This is Kiki from Youngstown, Ohio. Just wanted to say that you guys rock, and I'm proud of Nat for finally winning the coffee maker. Maybe next year, Joe can buy her a refrigerator if she wins a couple more games. Cheers. Go Browns. Hey, Joe. Hey, Hawk. NFC, Zerm, Nat. I guess this season was always going to end in tears. So just wanted to wish you all a happy New Year's. And hopefully 2019 will be even more amazing. I love you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. You make us proud. Welcome to the Tomahawk Show. We are presented by Uninterrupted. I am one of your co-hosts, Andrew Hawkins. 5'7 in your heart, number one in your program, or something like that. Wow. Joined, as always, by the 10-time Pro Bowler, four-time father, (laughs) zero-time People Magazine Sexiest Man Alive, Mm. Mm. my co-host, the Tama to my hawk, Joe Thomas. Joseph, how are you this weekend, man? It's 2019. Tell me about how your life has been so far this year. You know, this year has been all right. It's uh, still early. I feel like there's time to turn it around. Uh, we spent the whole weekend as a family celebrating like Christmas part due with uh, the in-laws, which was a lot of fun. But um, the kids being off of school for like 10 days in a row, I got really sick of seeing them every single day. And so uh, being that school finally started this week, I'm really happy to take them to school and get them out of the house so they stop <laughs> fighting with each other and they stop talking back to their parents. Uh, so I feel like now that school has started, 2019 is about to turn around. It's about to be. It's been a rough start because my kids yeah. are around. So Pretty tough. It'll pick up when school starts. No, I hear you. So far, so good for me, man. I mean, I've slept most of 2019 so far. We, 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 we shut 2018 down with a bang mm. in NYC. Me and the oh. wife did it. Real, real big, like P. Diddy style. Really? Um, yeah, now it's just all headshots in 2019. People better just <laughs> guard their neck because I'm not, I'm not messing around, brother. So you said you did it big to close out 2018. What did you do? Uh, well, we were in New York. We went to Catch NYC. Oh, I've been to Catch. By the way, that is a top five meal for me. I oh, love my that gosh. place. We got I, the, I uh, they have like a oh. sushi slash seafood tower. Oh and it was like $700, but there was so good. And they had, um, they also had the catch rolls and the tornado rolls, which are amazing. Mm. We had all kind of seafood, um, drinks flowing. We got the tomahawk steak because I was like, it's, it's the 2018 end. I would be, a, I would be an idiot if I didn't order this $19,000 steak called the tomahawk. <laughs> Did they give it to you for free since it's your name? They did it. Since you have I, the rights to the tomahawk? I kept telling them, like, you spelled it wrong. There's no H. <laughs> they weren't listening. But Snoop Dogg performed that night. Um, Wait a second. What? Robin, Robin Thicke was there. Lady Gaga was there. It was wild, man. Catch How NYC. The- it's like four levels, too. Yeah. Oh. So it was like two restaurant levels and like the big club up top. But I think Justin Timberlake was there, too. But it was just a, it was a crazy party, man. So did somebody invite you to this party or was it just you could call for reservations? Like how does one get into a party that Snoop Dogg plays in and Justin Timberlake shows up and there's all these other celebrities and then there's Andrew Hawkins? Well, see what happens is, see, I'm like a life hack uh, genius, people say. (laughs) Like when the history books are written and when they add the section called life hacking, I will be like the George Washington of life hacking. So my thing is always you never get chummy with the superstar. You get chummy with the guy beside the superstars, right? Like the guy who's making all the plans. He's the one that can get you in, put you in everywhere. Uh, long story short, I have like a million of those connections. And one of my connections <laughs> is, a, is a guy that I've been cool with for almost 10 years now. 
And the one place that he is like super duper always plugged into that I can literally at any time, any moment, doesn't matter who's there, doesn't matter what time it is, how popping it is, it's catch in NYC and catch in LA. Catch in LA is even harder to get into. Mm. And at the drop of a dime, because him and the guy are so tight, me and him are tight, he gets me mm. in catch every time. So it doesn't matter. Snoop Dogg could come in. He's going to have to wait behind the line of Andrew Hawkins because that's wow. my spot. I got to talk to you because I've tried to catch in NYC and I love it. And it's definitely not for poor people. It is like a gazillion dollars. It's super expensive. Oh, yeah. But uh, I got to come out to L.A. a little bit this offseason to do NFL Network stuff and to do some maybe Tomahawk stuff. I really want to try the catch in L.A. because I've heard that's almost even better, potentially. It is, man. But TMZ will be outside the door. The two times well, that I've They won't be that, looking for me, so that's That's, that's, that's what problem. I thought. That's what I thought. And as soon as I come out, I got Josh Gordon questions. The other time oh. they were asked, it was right when Vince Young was trying to make a comeback. And they were trying to, like, trick me into saying, Vince Young, don't make a comeback. And I'm like, man, <laughs> TMZ is legit. They know their people, man. So. Dude, you know what's funny about TMZ? Um, they found me at the airport one time. I was out at the Super Bowl. I want to say it was in Arizona, you know, and they always stock the baggage claim at all the Super Bowls, right? Uh-huh. Because they're waiting for all the athletes and the entertainers. They know that they're coming in. All like the B-list people that don't fly private, like me and you, so <laughs> they can ambush us and ask us stupid questions. But I was like so upset and taken aback that they thought I was a celebrity that I got really mean with this guy and I like started cussing him out <laughs> because he kept asking me like questions. He actually knew who I was, which was a huge shocker. But I kept saying to him, dude, I'm a lineman. You don't want to talk to me. I'm nobody. I'm not famous. Leave me the fuck alone. And like I started getting pretty aggressive because I got really mad at him. Like he would not understand. I'm an offensive lineman. You don't want me to say anything because you can't use it on anything because I'm <laughs> just worthless. So leave me the fuck alone. Get out of my way. Let me get my bags. I'm trying to get to the Super Bowl party that Hawk's probably already at. He's probably already five mimosas deep, probably passed out, and I need to go rescue my friend. So leave me alone. And you know what? Finally, he, he got the hint, and he left me alone. Yeah, so but it worked. So, so you just got to be really big assholes to the TMZ people. Then you got to hit them, and then that actually yeah, goes you, viral. And yeah, you become say, the interview that you said you didn't have. You became an incredible <laughs> interview that they were looking for in the yeah. first place. Exactly. Bingo. So, Zerm, next time you see TMZ waiting for you at the Cleveland baggage claim, start <laughs> hitting people and swearing, and you'll be really famous. I, I will, Joe. I could, I could feel the anger uh, from you reliving that moment coming dude, through the microphone. So hot. Who gets mad about somebody recognizing them? That is like the most <laughs> Joe. But Thomas I was thing. like, dude, I'm an offensive lineman. Yeah, I, I am in the NFL at the time. But you don't want to talk to me, so just leave me alone. Like you're <laughs> just wasting both of our time. There's nothing on this earth that makes me more upset than wasting time. And he was wasting <laughs> both of our times. Speaking of wasting time, this is the Tomahawk Show. We have an incredible show coming up. We got a bunch of topics. We got Antonio Brown wilding the F out in Pittsburgh. We are talking coaches losing their jobs left and right and a bunch of other stuff. Most importantly, we got Mina Kimes, my colleague and friend at ESPN, one of the only four NFL analysts I actually respect. So we're excited to have her on. Um, so, yeah, let's just get into it, Zern. What we got first? Yeah, guys, so first up, there's uh, it, it feels like it's been this way all year, but there is more drama in Pittsburgh. Mm. A couple reports coming out this week uh, about Antonio Brown, who uh, was yelling at some teammates and then um, reportedly missed a couple practices and some meetings this week, or the week leading up to their season finale uh, against the Cincinnati Bengals, and then obviously Antonio Brown did not play in that season finale. And then there were a couple reports yesterday that he either requested a trade, not demanded, or said he would like to be traded. Um, so, guys, what is going on with this Antonio Brown situation, and uh, do you think he is long for the Pittsburgh Steelers? I said at the beginning of the year the Pittsburgh Steelers are the new Cleveland Browns because they think about all the dysfunction they've had this year. They started out with Le'Veon Bell sitting out, right, and all the players were mad about that. To even when there was a time when players were stealing the stuff out of his locker, you had been <laughs> throwing all kind of people under the bus, you had Antonio going off on the sideline earlier, earlier, like last, like in the offseason, they got rid of their offensive coordinator, Todd Haley, because he and Ben Roethlisberger didn't get along. Like Ben's teasing retirement. Tomlin is calling up the, the defense on the sideline. You got former players that are pissed off at the organization because of the way things are being run. 
it's just like a weird, weird time in Pittsburgh, one we're not used to seeing. I don't know what the correct move is. The, the report is that the player that Antonio Brown got into a uh, disagreement with was Ben Roethlisberger, which also echoes everything we've been saying on the Tomahawk Show from day one. Ben Roethlisberger is not a Hall of Fame leader. I will say that till I'm in the grave, uh, and he rubs people the wrong way. Antonio Brown, I'm sure, is no... No rose to be around from time to time. He likes to make sure he gets the ball. But I just don't know what to make of it, to be real, Joe. I say all that to say nothing. Joe, what is your take? You did a great job of saying nothing. (laughs) So uh, it's an interesting story to follow because I think as you've seen Antonio Brown's star rise, it seems like, to me, he must not have anybody around him that he respects enough to listen to their point of view or he's got nobody around him that will give him an honest perspective of what's happening because he his star has has seemed to have gotten so big in his own mind that he has nobody that's going to check him. Like he doesn't have a a person on that team because he doesn't respect his quarterback Ben Roethlisberger enough. Now that could be just because Ben's not a Hall of Fame leader like you mentioned or because he just doesn't respect the things that Ben is saying because he's not living it on a daily basis. I don't know. Uh, there's nobody in his immediate family that he listens to, it seems like, that can give him some like realistic, down-to-earth advice. And maybe his agent, he either doesn't respect his agent or his agent isn't giving him the good advice that he needs. Because when you're like a superstar like this and you start doing crazy antics, I think about landing at practice in a helicopter. Like, Isn't that how he came into training camp? Mm-hmm. If you don't have anybody that says, okay, that's funny, but it's a little ridiculous and you got to kind of check yourself It just, as people just keep building that superstar up in his head, he just becomes too big for his own situation. And then when one little thing doesn't go right and doesn't go his way, he goes off the deep end and he's not able to put everything in perspective and understand that, yeah, I'm a great receiver, but in this game of football, my only value to this team is how I fit in and help the team win. It doesn't have to do with any of my fame off the field. It doesn't have to do with any of my statistics. It's how do I fit in 153rd into this team to help make this team better? And I think it seems like he's lost sight of that because I mentioned there's nobody around him that can be the governor that can say, hey, look, dude, what you're doing right now is hurting yourself. It's hurting your team. It's making you look like a fool and you don't realize it because everybody around you has been pumping you up since five, six years ago when you when you blew up and there's nobody to kind of tamp him down and say, hey, man, chill out. I, in my opinion, and my wife hates this that I think this way, I don't think people change. I think people are who they are, right? So I don't think that Antonio Brown is now doing something he did differently than eight years ago before he started averaging like 1,250 yards per season. I think he's still the same person. But what happens is... And actually, cement who he is even even more because he's a guy who came from the MAC conference. He was a walk on in college, went to the MAC conference, left early, was a six round pick. That's late. You shouldn't leave early if you're a six round pick. People said he wasn't going to do this, wasn't going to do that, and here he is. Is probably one of the best receivers of our generation. So when you do that, when everybody tells you one thing, you believe something else, and you end up being right, it basically diminishes what everybody else's opinion is. I suffer from it too. People spent so long telling me what I couldn't do, and I, I had to, for because of evolution and survival, be like, you know what? I don't care what they say. I made it, and now that I'm on this side of it and that part is over, people tell me what, they, what their opinions are now, and I still don't value it. Antonio Brown is the same way. He's not going to value the opinion of people that who for the longest time told him what he couldn't do. That being said, I think Antonio Brown thinks he is Ben Roethlisberger. Like, in, in the sense that Ben isn't the one keeping this team afloat. It's me. He's always wanted the ball. You look like over history. I don't care how good the Pittsburgh Steelers were. Antonio Brown wasn't happy if he's not getting the rock because that's the kind of player he is. And I'm okay with that. It's the coach's job, the quarterback's job to, A, keep that person happy, and, B, manage, you know, those attitudes because that's what makes him really, really good. So not to take the blame away from Antonio Brown. Yes, you have to be a professional. There's, there's shit he is doing wrong 110%, but all the blame is not his. That locker room has been crazy all year. That falls on Tomlin. 
Ben Roethlisberger, like I said from the start, he is very, very, very ego-driven as well. He doesn't like when other people are the star. He doesn't like when someone's star rises so much that it diminishes what people think of him. He's, not a, he's also not a I only care about winning guy. He's not because those kind of guys don't threaten retirement. Those kind of guys don't throw guys under the bus unnecessarily just to make yourself look better. So I just think there's a lot of ego in Pittsburgh. Antonio Brown's mad that Tomlin sides more with Ben Roethlisberger than he does him. And now you have this triangle of beef going on that I don't see a fix for. So they probably will have to trade him. Um, I don't know if he'll be the same Antonio Brown and another team, but I honestly don't see how they can mend it or fix it because it seems like it's very, very broken. If you're going to bench him in a must-win playoff, basically playoff game scenario. Well, you can't let him get away with the antics he's been doing. I don't care how important the game is because everybody in that roster needs to understand that there's no way, no matter how important you are, you're not more important than the team. And we have these certain principles. If you're not going to act within these reasonable set of boundaries that we've given, you can't play here because as soon as you give a player like that a little bit of leeway, he's going to keep taking more and more until you finally put your foot down. And I think that's what we saw. He's constantly had those antics and for the most part, it hasn't hurt him. It hasn't come around and bit him in the butt. But he just keeps pushing that line and keeps pushing it. And then when you don't have the success as a team that you kind of expected, that's when sort of the pushing of boundaries turns into much worse behavior and it, and it hurts the in, entirety of the team. I think uh, something that was interesting, and I'm going to give Andrew Hawkins credit, even though I know he didn't say this, but <laughs> wealth and fame are two things that bring out the worst qualities in people. And I believe that, Everybody on earth, if you gave them unlimited dollars, billions of dollars, there is some part of your personality that's probably not a good human, right? And when you don't have that money, you you can tamp those personality features down pretty easily, right? Because you have to interact in society and there's people that you count on, they're your bosses, they're people in your family that you can't just tell off because you're counting on them for other aspects of your life. But when you have unlimited money, you don't have to worry about that anymore. And then you can just allow like the shittiest parts of your personality to come out. And it's the same thing with fame because there's nobody in, in your circle that can tell you, hey, tamp that down or don't act like that because you can just say, screw you, I'm super famous. And that's how you live your life. And I think right now what you're seeing with Antonio Brown, like, like you mentioned earlier, he had that chip on his shoulder. He was always being told he couldn't do this and he couldn't do that. So he took the hard path and he did it because he knew he could. And now he's got wealth and fame. And so I think you're seeing some of the worst parts of his personality come out and he's got nothing internally that says I shouldn't say these things or I shouldn't do these things or I shouldn't chuck the football at my quarterback because it's going to hurt my team. He doesn't care because he's got unlimited wealth and fame. Joe, you've been in situations too, though, where like you've been just fed up, correct? Yes. You might not go out, you might not go about them the same way as Antonio Brown, obviously, but you've been in situations where you've been fed up. And I'm only saying that because I, I agree with the, the wealth and fame part that that does play into it. But I think more importantly than that is the leverage. Now he has leverage. He's not doing this shit as a six round, second year guy. Well, the wealth and fame is what gave him the leverage. He's is got that, the money and I the think, contract and, and the fame. That's why NFL teams are always afraid to give guys that have these big outsized personalities the huge contracts because now they have the guaranteed money and they don't have to worry about everything as much because they've already been paid so they can go be a turd if they if that's who they really are. But I, th I think that – I don't think the leverage comes with the money and fame. I think the money and fame come with the leverage if that makes sense because, yes, he's no. made that money now, but he's not happy if he doesn't make any money ever again. He's not acting out like I don't give a fuck if I ever make money again because he wants to make more money is where the leverage, I think he just realizes how important he is to the team. It's like once Joe Thomas realized how important he was to the Cleveland Browns, he was like, oh, it's okay for me to sit out of practice because I'm better on Sundays <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't practice all week. And you knew you had the leverage to do things. A young guy at that time, a young fab out of Harvard, he wasn't going to try to sit out of practice because it made him better on Sundays, even though it might have. It just, no, it wasn't going to make him better. <laughs> he was the one that needed to practice. I needed the rest because my body had broken down. Right, and you so had the difference. leverage to say I was, that. We were both doing what was in the best interest of the team. Right now, Antonio Brown doesn't have that little person sitting on his shoulder saying, this is not in the best interest of the team because you personally are too rich and too famous. I'm Stop not, it. I'm not disagreeing. What I'm saying is 
I don't think he's ever had the interest of the team down. That is just not how receivers' mindsets work nine no, times out of ten. You guys are the worst. We I hate just receivers. want because I say this all the time. The only two positions in a locker room who who have a, a interest in winning really to their job are quarterbacks and head coaches. If a receiver goes for 1,400 yards, he will get a max contract no matter what the fuck the record is. If a running back rushes for 1,100 yards, no matter if they are 0-16 and 16 or 15-1, and 1, he is going to get a big contract based on his statistics. A quarterback, if he has good statistics and doesn't win, will not get a big, will not get a big contract. An offensive coordinator is another guy. If they have a great Blake offense... Blake might disagree. He doesn't have a great... Record. Sam Bradford might they disagree. They need both. I'm saying that's what I'm saying. I just if you have good statistics and a, no, t- a shitty record, no one cares about you as a quarterback. You will not. Be I agree. Sustained. But assuming that your point is valid and that the receiver is just trying to maximize his money, uh, there still has to be some part in your head that when you get when you've pushed far enough about getting the ball and getting those statistics, where you realize that the actions that you take beyond that line, whatever that threshold is, are now hurting your dollar values because you have become such an asshole trying to get the football and trying to get the statistics that now your value to the team has gone down because even though your statistics are there, your personality has become such a detriment that a team now is taking those both into into account and overall, your money is going to go down. You can't argue that the things that have come out about Antonio Brown in the last few weeks aren't going to hurt his value as a receiver going forward, no matter what his statistics are. Because there's disagree. a point. Dude, the, the Vikings got rid of Randy Moss. He was putting up amazing statistics because they were tired of dealing with him. So he went to New England. So there has to be a point with every receiver that you can't push beyond that point to get the ball because you know it's going to hurt your value because now you've become such a detriment to your team. I think once your numbers go down and once you get to the up, like close to 30, people are going to – I don't give a fuck if he's a, a, a saint or not. I watched him deal uh, Anquan Bolden to four different teams past 30, and he was still leading the league in receptions just because he was old. So that's going to happen no matter yeah, what in that. the career of a receiver. I, if you're putting the numbers up, especially when you get 30, you'll notice that receivers get a little more like pissed off and, and, and temper-driven for that reason because they know the end is coming. They know that regardless yeah. of what numbers they're putting up, people will start trying to diminish their role and their value and their numbers, and I think that's what Antonio Brown's situation is. What is the fix, Joe? Do they trade them, keep them, or – well, all right, here's, here's what I'll say. I think there's two ways to have a successful franchise in the NFL. One, you have the dictator coach who can deal with multiple difficult star personalities. He can keep them in check. He can keep everybody with a common vision and a common focus. So far, it seems that Mike Tomlin has not been that guy, at least this year. He's had a lot of success there. I'm a Mike Tomlin fan, but the number of personalities in that locker room He's not able to take care of those so far. So you either have to have the head coach be that unquestioned disciplinarian, the Bill Belichick, the Tom Coughlin, they can keep those guys in line. Or you have to have a quarterback that can do that. You need that quarterback to be that unquestioned leader who holds the trump card with every dispute in that locker room that it doesn't matter who it is. In the end, the quarterback's going to win that argument because he is that type of unquestioned leader. We've also said that Ben Roethlisberger is not that guy. So what I'm saying is either Ben needs to be it or Tomlin needs to be it. And this year, neither one of them has shown that they can be that guy. So I think they need to get rid of one of those two guys or they need to do something with Antonio Brown because clearly that trifecta, that cocktail of those three guys is not something that you can continue with. Yeah. All right. Well, well what do you think they should do? To be honest, I think they have to trade him. I just think it's going to be too fractured of a relationship. My thing is, I'm not saying Antonio Brown is right. I'm not taking it aside. All I'm saying is I understand. I've been around the dude. I can promise you, and I, as a person who prided himself on working hard, I've never seen a player work as hard as Antonio Brown does. Like, he does not turn off. All this dude does is work. I'm talking a week after the season, we were together at like a, a charity function or, or all-star game, college game, something – and this is like early in our careers, 
and we were going to go to lunch. And I just like, I knew a roomie's in, knocked on his door. This is a week after the season had ended. His season was done. My season was done. He was in there doing ladder drills, dripping sweat in his hotel room, ice bags around. Like he's doing ladder drills, like, oh, just getting some extra work. And this is literally six days after the season ends. This is the kind of worker he is. So I could see over the course of a career in Pittsburgh, especially if there becomes a power struggle between he and Ben, if he feels like someone else is coasting through the motions and he's putting his time in, that he's like, nah, F that. I work hard. I deserve X, Y, and Z. I'm not just going to relinquish power to someone who doesn't put the time in that I do. So I'm just, all I'm saying is I understand. I still think that the only fix for them is to trade him so he gets into a new environment because that's what it seems like he wants. And they just move on to Juju Smith-Schuster, who, if he wasn't playing alongside Antonio Brown, we would already talk about as one of the top receivers in the league. We would talk about him like we talk about Odell. We would talk about him like we talk about Julio because Juju is, is one of the best guys in the NFL. He just plays alongside the best guy in the NFL, so he doesn't get as many headlines as he should. Here, here's a news flash for all the NFL players that are part of the Tomaflock. There's a lot of players in the NFL that work hard. Now, not every one of them wants to tell you about it on their Instagram page every single day. Not everyone wants to tell everybody about it on their Twitter. Not everybody wants to make that who they are. Oh, I'm the hardworking guy, right? We see that a lot from a lot of players. And it, it always kind of chat my ass a little bit because I'm like, hey, I know a lot of guys that work pretty hard, but we don't feel like we have to go out and tell everybody about it. We work hard because that's our job. That's what we do to put food on the table for our family. I don't need to tell anybody about it. It's like, uh, what's that new thing with millennials? I'm sure Nat can tell us. Is unless you put it on Instagram and Snapchat, it never didn't happened. Happen. <laughs> yeah, right. That's like with uh, Antonio Brown and some of these some of these other players in the NFL who I will remain nameless. They feel like every workout they do in the offseason, they have to put it on social media, or it didn't work. It it didn't affect their body properly. And I feel like some of this, I'm a hard worker. I work harder than anybody attitude that Antonio Brown has. That's great. That's got him where he is, has given him a sense of entitlement where he can act any way he wants because, well, I'm a hard worker. You know, there's lots of guys who are lazy, but I work hard so I can do whatever I want. And I think that's a dangerous mentality. It is, but I will not disagree with it. Now calling in, we have the best NFL analyst in all of media, television, audio, um, history, anything you can imagine. Mina Kimes joining us here on the Tomahawk Show. Mina, how are you doing today? History. Wow. History. Okay. I'll take that. Number one. So congrats <laughs> on that. And when we say it, it's true. That's what everybody realizes. That's why everyone is knocking I... down our door to make sure they join the Tomahawk <laughs> podcast. I think you're right. It's true. You said it. So there it is. I accept it. So we got the NFL playoffs starting off. And again, we were like, we only want one person on to give us their opinion <laughs> because we don't respect anybody else's opinion. And specifically, we wanted to start with Seattle. How are you feeling about Seattle's chances right now to make a Super Bowl run? Not great. Uh, but I do feel <laughs> okay. the way you... <laughs> I'm a realist, guys. I'm a homer, but a realist. So, I like it. Which is, I think, the best, the best kind of homer. But I, I'm, I feel great about their chances to win this weekend. But uh, beyond that, you know, they're most likely going to play the, the Saints in New Orleans and get a little hairy there. But I think the Cowboys are probably the best possible matchup they could have asked for. So who do you have? As, who, who are the two teams you picked to go to the Super Bowl? Saints and the Chiefs. And I actually picked the Saints as my winner in August for ESPN NFL mm. Insider. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. Wow. Mm. Who did you pick yeah. in the AFC then? Way back when? Oh, the, uh, oh, not the Chiefs. <laughs> we don't want to talk about that. The only thing that matters is I pick the Saints to win. That's you really what, right what's one. important here. Let's focus on the important things. Let's focus on the important thing. I love it. Um, yeah, I like my favorite part about Seattle is, is Russell Wilson. Actually, false. Russell's my third favorite thing. Whoa. Sierra is my second favorite thing. And Tyler Lockett <laughs> is my first favorite thing. I think Tyler Lockett is – one of the best receivers in the NFL that we don't talk about, probably him and Juju Smith-Schuster because Juju gets overshadowed by Antonio. But Tyler Lockett had something ridiculous. Like he was targeted 80 times or was it 70 yeah. times? 70, and he had like 57 70, yeah. catches. So and, there was only 13 you know, times yeah, they crazy. threw the Tyler Lockett and he didn't catch the ball. And there was no interceptions. So uh, being a pessimistic Seahawks fan, which, you know, 33 years uh, on this earth will do that to you. 
Uh, you guys know. I'm, just, I'm in a safe place for pessimism here on this podcast. Yes, exactly. Podcast. Trust me. But the dark side of that statistic is like, yeah, it's incredible. You're like, oh, my God, that perfect passer rating, and he's so good. Why only throw him to him 70 times? Oh, right, because the Seahawks insist on running the ball second and long, you know, every dang time. But, yeah, it, it is remarkable. He's he's fantastic. Russell Wilson, is, I think, throws the prettiest deep ball in the NFL right now, and their connection is undeniable. Yeah, something that you said was interesting to me. You thought that the Seattle-Dallas was the best matchup that the Seahawks could have gotten. Why do you say that? Well, I, I mean, I think Dallas is the the weakest of the divisional winners in the NFC. They're kind of similar to the Seahawks in a lot of ways. You know, obviously run first offense with a mobile quarterback um, and uh, I, good defense. I think Dallas' defense is actually better than Seattle's, although they didn't finish particularly strong but they both you know really just want to possess the football I think the difference I mean is pretty obviously that Seattle has a significantly better quarterback um but I I mean I I think like can you imagine it I I thought it was really important that they locked down the 50 because against Chicago uh, that would have been a very very difficult matchup for Seattle it'll be interesting to me do you think that playing in Dallas's AT&T stadium is going to have any impact on the game like Dallas fans are notoriously quiet but i feel like even though their record is uh is kind of up and down this season that the fans seem to be much more behind this cowboys version of this team than they have in the past and do do you find that playing there is going to be more difficult for them versus if they would have had the opportunity to play in seattle uh yeah i no i i think whether the only thing that would, you know, again, the only place I really think Seattle should have been afraid of going is Soldier Field and every team I don't, I think should be afraid of going there, especially Jared Goff. But I, I, I don't think it's a huge deal. Uh, you know, Seattle's won in Dallas a lot and uh, Seattle, the home field advantage is still real. I don't think it's as dramatic as it perhaps it was in the past with this team. Um, so I, I think, Again, and then with the time zone and the start, they benefited as well. With Seattle, the concern and the Chargers really got screwed here. It's always, you know, going on the road and playing in the morning. What other dark horse team? And I, I hate to put Seattle as a dark horse team, but they are to me. I don't think, like you said, they have a super high chance of going to the Super Bowl, but I do like them because yeah. they have a good quarterback. What other dark horse team in this playoffs has you excited or that you think could possibly make a run? I really love watching this Ravens team. Yeah, uh, are, you, are you a Lamar Jackson <laughs> hater or a fan? Because you can I am a, one or the other. I am a fan. Well, so I did a story on Lamar Jackson in college. So I watched a lot of his games, and uh-huh. it's been really interesting to watch him uh, in the NFL because you know you've seen a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses, the same struggles throwing out. Um, but he's actually you know a very good decision maker, and we all the athleticism wasn't a surprise to anyone. Um, but I love him on this football team. I love the the complimentary football that they're playing. He's so it, it's always funny. Like it's not about whether Lamar Jackson is the best rookie quarterback. He's clearly not. Baker Mayfield is undeniable. Playing not to pay, you know, pander to you guys. So yeah, thank you. Right there, he's number one. He's special. He's special. But and you saw that in his in his last matchup, I think. But what you guys also saw is Baltimore after Chicago has the second best defense in football, and it's not particularly close. Uh, they do not have weaknesses, really, I think. Um, you know, Marlon Humphrey was bad in that game, but he's been great all season. Otherwise, they are so – I mean, what Martin Dell said, they're so shifty, so confusing, so difficult for opposing offenses to read the way they mix up coverages and the stuff they do. So I, I love that defense, and I love Lamar Jackson as the quarterback that plays with that defense. The only concern to me is he's got this fumbling problem and that's the only way I can really see them. Uh, either if they fall behind, which I don't think will be an issue with uh, Los Angeles based on how they played, or if he fumbles. Otherwise, I think they could go pretty far. There's a lot of chatter about John Harbaugh's future in Baltimore. I just can't understand why people in Baltimore don't love this guy. He's done consistently really good things there. They, they haven't always had the best roster as of late. But he seems to have found a way to motivate his team, and and he's changed their style from when they had Joe Flacco to now that Lamar Jackson is the coach. What do you think is going to end up in uh, Baltimore with John Harbaugh? Are they going to trade him? Is he going to get that extension that they've been talking about? Or do they potentially get rid of him? 
I agree with you. I, I think he's fantastic. And he's the reason I've always felt like special teams, Coach, you know, he has a special teams background, which is pretty rare uh, amongst head coaches. And right now, as we're talking about head coaching searches, I always have, I've long felt that that's um, a kind of an area that NFL teams could look at and exploit because other teams don't seem to go there at Dave Tube and Kansas City comes to mind. But I think he's excellent. And he just simply could not have managed this transition any better, right? I mean, you talk about how he changed, obviously, you know, in conjunction with, um, you know, Morin Wig and Roman, how he's changed this offense on the fly. Um, but it's not just like, I hate when people say, oh, the Ravens, they got this old school running out. There's nothing old school about this offense. The stuff they're doing with, I mean, Joe, you, got, you must have so much appreciation for what this offensive line is doing. Because on every run game, the, the deception, the execution of the line, the way they use tight ends as blockers, the pre-snap motions, I mean, it is art, okay? I love this run game. And Harbaugh deserves the world of credit to me for managing it so well. Sorry, I got a little bit emotional talking about the run game. <laughs> Seems like you're a Ravens fan <laughs> instead of a uh, no, Seahawks I mean, fan. That's all right. We understand. I mean, all I did was fall asleep when you guys start talking line and play because <laughs> – if it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I put on online petitions every month to remove linemen from the NFL game. It never gets the amount of signatures we need, but I'm still champion the fight. Oh. You guys are talking about coaches. You know what I love what you said about special teams coaches? The reason why I love the idea of a special teams coach as a head coach and Darren Simmons in Cincinnati comes to mind because I love that guy as well while I was there. But special team coaches, like special teams is all attitude and effort. It like there's yeah. not like yes, there's X's and O's to it, but it's very minimal. If if you have a bunch of guys who are going really hard, you probably will have a pretty good special teams unit. And I think that just kind of marries up well with the head coaching position. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I, I see why other teams want to trade for him, you know, um, but I think Baltimore would be stupid to let him go. I agree. All right. So trans talking about coaches. Um, other coaches, Zimmer. I this is news to me, but apparently the Vikings are considering firing Mike Zimmer. Is this a real thing? I think they all denied it. Not that that means anything <laughs> this time of year. Uh, I, I don't think, I think he's going to stick around. I mean, you guys are seeing the names being thrown out. It's not like there are so many hot, obvious candidates with experience. So I can't imagine. I mean, they, but th- what they need is, an offensive coordinator he listens to and trusts, and what they need is an offensive line. And I don't really think changing the head coach changes any of that. Any of the head coaching firings, did they surprise you? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, Marvin Lewis. <laughs> 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 you assumed when he was on his 20th life that he'd get another one, but that would be the, probably the biggest surprise. Do you think that in Cincinnati they're going to hire Hugh Jackson? It seems like that's the story that just won't go away. Y'all, you, you guys probably have more insight into that than me, but I can't imagine. Like the, even with what we know about Cincinnati and how that team is run and the relationships there, the backlash for that would be so insane. And they, you know, they know that. I can't imagine that they'd be willing to go through that. Mm. Well, we're going to keep in the AFC North. We have another question for you, and we'll let you get out of here. This okay. Antonio Brown situation has been like <laughs> – it's consumed this episode of the Tomahawk show so far. Me and Joe were in different sides of it. What is your Where take you? on it? Yeah, I just, I'm like, I guess it's the receiver in me. I'm kind of siding more with Antonio Brown than everybody else. Joe is obviously the ultimate team guy. Stats don't matter because Lyman don't get stats. Um, <laughs> so we're like just on different, we're opposite sides <laughs> of the spectrum. Wanted to get your take. What do you make of this whole situation? And do you have a, uh, a, a resolution or a solution that we can give the Pittsburgh Steelers to fix this whole mess? Well, I, I do. I, have, I did story on Antonio uh, a couple of years ago, so I've spent a bit of time with him. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got a really inter- interesting, you know, super difficult upbringing, um, complicated guy, hard worker, difficult personality, though, at times. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, difficult personality. Le'Veon Bell, difficult personality. So <laughs> I, I, I guess my, my take on this, guys, is it's, it's not one person's fault. Basically, the three best players on your team all had difficult personalities, right? Mm. Usually uh, on a football team, you got one guy maybe, but not all three, okay? So I don't think it's just – like, you know, and when I say Beth and Ben Roethlisberger, he was out – I think what bothers me, what people don't understand is, like, the thing, some of the things he does in terms of – publicly criticizing his teammates and 
you know, airing out guys to dry and not calling Ben or Antonio the number one receiver at the beginning of the season, that kind of stuff. That's not normal quarterback stuff. Like people say, well, he's earned it. He's like, well, yeah, but you don't see Matt Ryan doing that or other yeah. quarter, you know. So right. he is a very unique character. And I don't envy Mike Tomlin's task and the rest of the front office in managing those all of those very difficult personalities. All of that said, they can't trade Antonio Brown because then they screw themselves for years. You guys, I'm sure, have looked at the contract. It's not tradable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they got a bell gone. So you take out one of those variables. They got to fix that relationship at least for another year before he is tradable, or they are going to be screwed for the near future. Well, do you think they bring Mike Tomlin back? I do. You know, he's made a lot of mistakes this season, um, but I have long felt that the failure of this team this season it was. Uh, actually the front office, the fact that they did not address their deficiencies on defense, the safety position up the middle in particular, that they completely mismanaged the Le'Veon Bell situation from the beginning. That's all executive stuff, not Tomlin's fault. Well, that's a good point because we see all these head coaches getting fired this year, including Steve Wilkes after only one season. But why aren't we seeing general managers getting fired? It's a great question. All the blame. I'm with you. And the GMs are setting this shitty table, and then all of a sudden they blame the head coach and get them out of there. What's that all about? Elway? I mean, uh, Mike. He's the worst. I mean, yeah, look around. It's crazy. Yeah, why are we – it's a really good question. It comes down to this. Like, if you don't have a good quarterback, and, you know, a lot was been made because Black Monday got, like, almost literally black because there was five of the seven (laughs) minority coaches. They were trying to scrub the uh, the blackness out of the league, Hawk. Yeah. And Tomlin is next, apparently. Um (laughs) But the, the, the common denominator is everyone who fired doesn't didn't have great quarterback play. So it yep, probably should come yep. down. Whoever is picking the quarterback is the one who should be fired. Because if you don't have a good quarterback, you will not win. Yeah, and if you're a coaching candidate, like a hot coaching candidate, don't go to a team without a quarterback, man. That's yeah. why the Browns job is the most attractive in football right now. Again, pandering. Yeah. I love <laughs> the pandering. Appreciate it. Welcome, no, you, know what, you know what my theory is on that is that general managers, they spend a a lot of time in their office, they're watching film, they're talking with their personnel people. They also spend a lot of time with the owners, right? Because they're all yeah. upstairs together. Their offices are close. Getting so cozy. the gyms, yeah, they're constantly in that owner's ear talking about, well, these players are better than you think they are. The coaches aren't getting the most out of this guy. I gave them this guy. And so that really develops the uh, outlook and the perspective that the owner has on what his team is doing. Whereas a head coach has so many more responsibilities. He's always working with the players and his own coaches, and he doesn't spend as much time with the owner to kind of give his side of the story. And so when it comes time at the end of the season to make a decision, the owner has this perspective from the GM's eyes about, Oh, look, I, I gave him these great groceries and it was his fault. He wasn't the one that was able to make the great dinner. And so then the head coach gets fired. I don't know. That's just my take on it. Yeah. You got to buddy up with the owners if you're the head coach. That's right. I'm ass kissing from these head coaches. That's what Joe did his whole (laughs) career, man. That's why he lasted so long. So in conclusion, you have in Pittsburgh, difficult personalities, and they were really good and good winners. And Joe and I are incredible personalities, and we were 11 and 36 (laughs) together. Um, So it, it makes a lot of sense. But that's why we're now the best podcasters in the yeah. history of audio, joined by the best <laughs> analyst in the history of football, Mina Kaz. Mina, we appreciate you joining us here on the Tomahawk, and you are welcome back anytime. Thanks, guys. You got to come on my podcast next time. Done. We, we'd love to. Hawk, we didn't even ask her about uh, retweeting your uh, – quote retweeting your, your tweet. You guys must be new to the Mina Kimes troll game. Like, I'm just so used to it. I look for – I have alerts set for Mina Kimes trolls. I have an assistant – who I literally pay billions of dollars a year just to watch her Twitter feed and get her top trolls. When you tweeted that, so for those (laughs) who don't know, he tweeted, you know, let's retweet, let's not quote tweet in 2019. Did it not come into your head that you were setting the table for me? Honestly, as a a person who I feel like I'm a top social media guy, like I grew up in social media, like my my whole social media like strategy is 
how can I make myself a part of anything that's going on? So when like Palomalu <laughs> retires, I do a video of me and Palomalu, him hitting me to make it about myself. <laughs> that's what social media is, right? So this was me really trying to set a resolution. Like, you know what? I'm going to stop mm. like thinking of better jokes than the next person. I'm always that guy. I like, try to top somebody else's good joke. So I'm like, I, mm. I genuinely thought this was a noble tweet that people were going to be like, you know what? We're going to do the right thing here. We're just going to hit retweet on this tweet. And I'm talking about within 22 seconds, Mina comes in with the next level troll. Like, nah, F that noise, Hawk. This is how we're doing it. Mm. And of, of course, all hell broke loose after that. I, I'm so upset with myself. I'm like, oh, how did I not see that one coming? You actually all did have some people night. on there, though, that uh, took it seriously and were like, Hawk, that's such a I great know. idea. And I, <laughs> but then people were like, no, that's terrible. Like, what if I want to add my own opinion to it? Yeah. Yeah. People thought I was serious. And they were like, like people, like, so people were mad at me. People were like applauding me. They were like, no, you can't tell like me Twitter. what to do. I'm like, I'm not trying to yeah. tell you what to do, bro. It was a joke. But, it was great yes, because yeah. there was a lot of levels to that tweet. Like, you could have taken it a million ways. Like, if, if you were a deep, deep, like, storytelling musician, I feel like you could have <laughs> written a whole album about that tweet. <laughs> Music done by Mina Kimes, of course. Mina, again, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Thanks, Mina. All right, that was Mina. So happy she joined the show, man. That's one of, honestly, my favorite analysts in all of football, and I mean that. Like, she's the only, one of the only opinions I actually trust. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to actually dive in a little more into the coaching stuff with her. We just didn't have the time, but Joe, I have a question for you. Does the Rooney rule work? Cause again, I know we joked about it, but we are down to two minority head coaches or was it three minority coaches? It's three. actually three. It's two black yep. coaches. And then Ron Rivera being is, of Hispanic origin. Yes. <clears throat> so, so three minority down to three minority coaches from seven. It, does the Rooney rule work? And what is there a fix for it, Joe? And do you even so, understand why we have the Rooney rule? A lot yeah, of, lot of so things to unpack I here. don't know. Maybe. Let's just talk about it. So I'm such an analytical Excel spreadsheet nerd that when I think of things like this, the first thing I think of is, okay, the, the Rooney rule is in place. What was the purpose of the Rooney rule? And the way I looked at the Rooney rule, and tell me if I'm wrong, is the Rooney rule was just meant to give minority coaches the ability to put their name out there that they could potentially be a head coach somewhere. Because for a while, minority coaches in the NFL weren't even getting the opportunity to interview for head coaching jobs. They weren't getting their name out there in the media as potential head coaches. And so because of that, they'd been passed over. And I think the reason we were in this situation is because if you rewind 70 years, there wasn't any African-American players in the NFL. And then by and large, players become assistant coaches, assistant coaches become head coaches. Those head coaches hire their buddies to be the assistant coaches. And it becomes this cycle. And so for many of years, black players hung out with black players, white players hung out with white players. And when a white player got promoted, he would hire all of his white buddies. And since uh, 70, 80 years ago, there was all white head coaches, there was never that cycle that could get broken, or at least it was taking forever to kind of break that cycle to find the best candidates overall. And in a league that's predominantly African-American, it seems unusual to say the, the, the least about it that most of the head coaches are white guys. So that's kind of, I think, in the in the be genesis of the Rooney rule, what the point was is let's just make sure we're kind of breaking through some of this bad cycle that we have of how we get to our head coaches mm -hmm. and make sure everyone gets an opportunity to get their name out there, to get an opportunity to interview and prove that they might have great credentials to be a head coach. I you hit it on the head, man. Bias is a crazy thing and it's not always done consciously. It's sometimes, exactly. like you said, people just gravitate to people they have the same outlook with, the same shared experiences. So just a little history lesson for the Tama flock. Do you know what year the first head coach, the first black head coach was in the NFL? Joe. I'm going to say it wasn't until like the 90s or the 80s. 1921. Was the in first the NFL. Black head coach. It was a player coach by the name of Fritz Pollard. He was a player oh, the Fritz and a head Pollard coach. Alliance. There you go. Yep. So there's where the Lions come from. 1921, do you know when the next black head coach was in the NFL? <laughs> now it has to be the 80s. 1989. 
There you go. So I, so, I knew I was right in there somewhere. There was a very, very large gap. On top yes. of that, between, I think, 1933, the owner of the Washington Redskins, he brought the Redskins into the NFL. He was, uh, for lack of a better term, a racist guy <laughs> who then influenced <laughs> the rest of the owners to remove black players. Black players were in the NFL. There was like 10 to 15 up until mm-hmm. 1933, and they kind of mm-hmm. just, without making an announcement about it, no more black players. The first business the next decision. Business decision. 1946. Get rid of the black players. The LA Coliseum told the Rams that if they did not sign a black player, that they could not use the stadium with the city because they mm. couldn't. Teams who had segregated, you know, policies were not allowed to use the government-funded stuff, which was the stadium. So, 1946, black player was drafted, or I mean, first black player was drafted and signed that year by the Rams. By 1952, every NFL team had a black player except the Washington Redskins. Guess, do you know when the first Washington Reds black player was, what year it was? 1952, all the other teams had it. Washington Redskins' first black player was? Wow. Was it like in the 60s? That would be insane. 1969. The oh, my God. city of Washington <laughs> gave them the same ultimatum, the same owner. Oh. He had, his quotes were like, when the Harlem Globe tried to start signing white players, I'll start signing Negroes. He said, I have nothing <laughs> against Negroes. I just want my team all white. Those are his, his oh. quotes. So in 1969, they forced him to draft a black player. He drafted Ernie Davis. The first overall pick. And Ernie Davis' quote was, I won't go play for that son of a bitch. That was his quote, (laughs) which is a very crazy rope in, given some Mm. of the recent um, kind of things going on. But he got traded to the Browns. Bobby Mitchell goes to the the Redskins. And then the whole league is integrated. I I line that up to say now the league is 70% African-American. And the coaches... Again, there's only two or three out of 32 who are minorities. But the reason why the Rooney rule doesn't work and and won't work is exactly what you said, Joe. Coaches are hired through the pipeline of coordinators, and coordinators are hired through the buddy system. So it's not Mm -hmm. like the head coach. If your head coach doesn't knock the socks off the the owner, whether it's a minority or whatever, he just goes and hires his buddies as the OC and DC, and that is the pipeline to being a head coach. So if there's no... Offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators who also have the kind of same Rooney rule where you have to just go pick the best OC and DC regardless of your relationship, then it probably isn't going to work. There's only six coordinators who are black in the NFL, only one on the offensive side of the ball in uh, Eric B. Enemy when everyone's looking for offensive gurus. And of the mm-hmm. five D coordinators, two of them are already former head coaches and Leslie Frazier and Romeo Cornell, so they're not getting the jobs. And then two of the other th- three remaining – were hired by the, you guessed it, two of the black coaches that were hired based hmm. on the buddy system. Again, hmm. it's more of a, hey, my buddies are the people that have shared experiences with me, who have the same outlook I do, may have grow, grown up the same way. So until we kind of break that system down, like we did the NFL players, where we don't let the quarterback pick who his receivers are. Like Matt Stafford can't say, hey, me and A.J. Green go way back to college. He's going to be my wideout. Or the Clemson quarterback can't say, hey, give me um, DeAndre Hopkins, Give me whoever the hell else played at Clemson. That's just not how it works. So until they do that for coaches, it's probably not going to change. Unfortunately, I hate to say that the Rooney Rule doesn't work. It was noble in its cause and trying to change that. But to be honest, if you look where we're at, it doesn't work. And they should probably do away with it or get another fix. It seems like the Rooney Rule doesn't have any enforcement with it. It's just sort of encouraging owners when they're going to hire a head coach or a general manager to uh, at least make the perception that you interviewed a minority candidate. So do you just totally go away with it and replace it with nothing right now because you're saying it doesn't work? I, I say they, they do enforce it because it's penalty if you don't abide by the Rooney rule. Yeah, but now, all you have to say is, yeah, I interviewed Andrew Hawkins. Exactly. He's black. And then it's, just, it's, the, it's the one black candidate that just goes to all 32, all yeah, seven open like, interviews. Okay. He's, he's the cross-off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say do away with it um, only if you have another solution, which I don't know what the solution well, is. Like I said, right. like, well, is the team going to say, hey, I'm going to hire my head coach and I'm going to hire the OC and DC. The head coach doesn't get to pick that. Here's the best DC we have interviewed. Here's the best OC we interviewed. These are now your coordinators. You make it work. Is that going to happen? Are you going to say, well, no, a head coach needs the chemistry with his guys. He has to be able to X, Y, and Z. Well, then coaches with chemistry get fired all the time. That probably doesn't work any better than going to find the best available OC and DC. So until you start doing that, 
you won't create the real pipeline for people to get jobs. Otherwise, it'll continually be the buddy system, which is how NFL coaching works. It's not like, you know, we always talk about these coaching trees. It's not because the coach was such a, you know, a great picker of talent. It's his buddies that who got the opportunity to do really well, and then they continue to flourish. They all come from the same coaching trees. Like most of the minority candidates and head coaches came from the Tony Dudgy coaching tree because he had other buddies who were also minorities that he was putting on his staff and learning from him. Here's an alternate take. Do you think that the reason we have so many white coaches in the NFL and in coaching in general is because generally speaking, coaches were quarterbacks. Now, I realize uh, that's not everybody, but maybe if you had to say a, a majority of coaches somewhere along the line were quarterbacks and those are the guys that get into the coaching profession, especially the positions that get elevated to coordinator. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe not on defense as much, but like usually you're a quarterback, then you go be a quarterback's coach, then you be an offensive coordinator, then you be a head coach. That's kind of like the lineage. Whereas if you're an offensive lineman, you go to the dead end job of offensive line coach. Nobody ever elevates an offensive line coach to offensive coordinator. It's very rare that you have your running backs coach go to offensive coordinator. Now, I realize it happened in Cleveland this year because of the situation that happened there. But it's just not as common because typically your offensive coordinator is somebody that has to have big picture view of the entire offense. So they have to know the route concepts, the blocking concepts, the run game, kind of a little bit of everything. And so naturally, it's the quarterback that has that best understanding. So I'm going to say that I think time, of course – you know, you want this to be sooner rather than later, but because there is way more black quarterbacks in the NFL now and in football in general, that the number of black coaches in college and the pros is going to change over time. And it's just a matter of waiting, which of course, nobody wants to wait to rectify any injustices that is going on, but without a reasonable rule that's in place to fix the Rooney rule, what do you do? Just eliminate it? You know, I, I like I, again. I don't think you eliminate it because I think it's noble in its cause, and it does it does get more minority coaches the opportunity to interview and at least go through those exercises that they probably wouldn't be there before, right? So there is some benefit in that side of it. Now, is it is it making owners hire more minorities as head coach? That, I don't know. I, I I honestly don't know. So I don't think you completely get rid of it. But your take about black quarterbacks rising over time, like we have more black quarterbacks now than we've ever had, I do think that probably will produce more probably coaches who are also Mm. black. Um, But as you know, for a while, that was not the case. The game definitely is changing to where you look at the top quarterbacks now in the NFL, it is very, very diverse. And that wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago, right? So you mean to tell me someone's going to tell Russell Wilson he can't be a coach? Now, whether Russell Wilson wants to be a coach is another question. Whether uh, Cam Newton wants to be a coach is another question. Whether Deshaun yeah. Watson is going to want to be a coach is another question. But, yeah, as, as I feel like, like you said, that I'm at a loss for words because I'm like, that is freaking genius. You're right. Yeah. But it's you going know to take 20 years, but it's great. Yeah, right. Hey, just wait longer. You know, the, <laughs> the problem with um, – or not a problem, but in – NFL coaching and in coaching in general, typically you are not going to be the best quarterback in the NFL and then go into coaching. Usually it's those guys like the Josh McCowns, the guys that were career backups that love the game, love being around the game. And when you retire, you maybe haven't made enough money to just go do whatever you want the rest of your life. If I'm Cam Newton, I've already made 150 or 200 million in life uh, as a quarterback. You're probably not going to go into coaching and want to start out as a uh, quarterbacks coach or a quality control guy working 80 hours a week getting paid 60 grand uh that's just not what's going to happen but I think in the college game a lot of those coaches are the ones that are willing to grind it out and then become NFL assistant coaches and then head coaches so to me I look towards really the college game and then the backup roles in the NFL those are the guys the Josh Johnsons the Thad Lewis I feel like those are probably the most likely guys that are going to get into the coaching world and then those are the guys that will probably be the ones that do change over time where um, more black coaches are given those opportunities to rise in the NFL coaching ranks specifically you're right man all right love it let's uh Time to recap our Browns, man. The season is over for the Cleveland Browns. We had, what was our final record there, Firm? Uh, seven, eight, 
and one. Seven, eight, and one. Cleveland Browns. Baker Mayfield breaks the rookie touchdown record in 13 games. It's hard to find anybody who knows anything about football to say that he is not the real deal. Um, and if he was kind of that from day one, we all seen it. The trajectory for the franchise is at an all-time high. We're in the hunt for a head coach. They are, they're calling it the hottest job in football because of the fact we've submitted who our long-term quarterback is. Joe, give me what your thoughts are on a recap of the Cleveland Browns season now that the games are over and we won't be able to laugh, cry, and hurt with the team for the remainder of this year. So in the offseason, I said they were going to be a 500 team based on the talent that they had. Mm-hmm. You were I wrong. was pretty close to being right. <laughs> now, I didn't predict it to happen just exactly the way it did because I definitely thought Terod Taylor was going to be the quarterback the whole year. Uh-huh. I thought for sure Dorsey was going to keep uh, Baker Mayfield on ice, which they tried to. And people need to remember back, the reason Baker Mayfield played was because Terod got a concussion on Thursday night football against the Jets. Right. Otherwise... The Browns would never have played Baker because John Dorsey wanted Baker Mayfield to be the next Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, where you give him a year, you don't put him out there before he's ready, especially in a season where the coach is probably going to get fired and having him deal with all the turmoil that goes around with that. But somehow he was enough of a talent, uh, talent we've never seen as a rookie playing that quarterback position before in the NFL. He was able to overcome all the drama and the turmoil of a coaching change, of playing as a rookie and playing damn well, putting together the best rookie season that we've ever seen from a quarterback. So um, they are very well positioned for the future. They lost the last game of the season, but I'm going to say that that last game of the season unfolded as well as possible for Cleveland Browns and their fans because the way they kind of went down early, were able to come back, build themselves back up into a close game. Baker Mayfield taking them all the way down the field, giving them an opportunity to almost win the game. They lost. That'll keep their chip on the shoulder. But they proved to themselves that they could play with anybody, that that offense can score points and throw the ball against the best defense in the NFL. And I think that'll serve them well going into the offseason in a game that they weren't going to make the playoffs even if they had won. So I think it sets them up really well. It gives them that motivation, that chip on that shoulder that they continue through the 2019 offseason while they have the most salary cap space. And I think they have like 11 draft picks this offseason. So it's going to be a tremendous offseason and it's going to set them up for an amazing 2019 campaign. What was the Browns record? When uh, Baker Mayfield took over. They were 0-1-1 before that Jets game. And they won the Jets game, so they were 1-1. They were 2-2-1 before they went on that losing streak. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I'm trying to predict. I remember we made predictions of the remaining 13 games of what they would go. I picked them to go 7-6. and six. Joe predicted them to go 9-3. and three. Mm. False. Joe predicted him to go 10 and 3. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> Pretty close. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, Joe, you hit on the head. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to hear my analysis of the Browns after you went so in depth. Uh, Not really. Obviously. But yeah, they're, they're just exciting. They, when you look at them, you feel probably the, the strongest about their quarterback situation other than any other team in the, in the division, right? Because Roethlisberger, we talked about him all episode. I don't feel great about his trajectory. Lamar Jackson is playing really, really well. He just doesn't have the skills Baker Mayfield has. Um, and they're more of a team effort than they are at the quarterback position. A lot of questions around Andy Dalton, although he's my boy in Cincinnati, that you know, fans just, for whatever reason, they can't stand him. I always have been an Andy Dalton fan, am an Andy Dalton fan. Uh, but just trajectory-wise, you look at Baker Mayfield and the confidence he has, the confidence he plays with, the way he ups the players around him's game. I always talk about Rashard Higgins, like what they're able to get out of him and Joku playing lights out. Jarvis Landry, um, the running game. It's just everything seems to be gelling. The nucleus is so young that you just hope they get a coach in there that can kind of play to the personalities and also continue to put the guys in position to play well like Freddie Kitchens has done, like Greg Williams has done. And it'll be a special, special time for the Cleveland Browns next year and beyond for as long as Baker Mayfield continues to develop and mature. Yeah, they're going to be good. That's the moral of that story. Yeah. Do you think you retiring has anything to do with it? I know it's people don't tend to talk about it, but 
It's something I pointed out before you retired that mm. as soon as you would retire, <laughs> they would be really good. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think they finally ditched the dead weight, and that allowed them to be propelled to great seasons and uh, championships moving forward. So clearly, when the results of the science experiment are in, and you suck when your left tackle is number 73, and then when the left tackle is not 73, you're good. What else can you say? What can you say? Joe, you laid the foundation. Every year, guys, every year when my friends would ask me after another you know, tough Brown season, they'd be like, Jordan, what do the Browns need to get better? I'd be like, I, if they don't cut Joe Thomas <laughs> this season, like I don't understand why they keep hanging on to him. So, yeah, it, we, it, just, it, it was about time. You protected the quarterback too, too well, and they like— Too well, Joe. They they would take too long to throw the football. It would just it would just give them more time to make bad decisions. That's what it was. That like was the that problem. Thing. I can get behind that one. All right, that's what we'll roll with. All right, well, that does it for the Tomahawk Show. Thank you guys for joining us. Listen, make sure you are subscribing, rating us five stars anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social at Tomahawk Show on Instagram, on Twitter. Hit up Fat Nat. Hit up Cleve Zerm. Hit up Joe Thomas seventy three. Hit up myself, Hawk. We appreciate you, as always. Um, also, probably doing a new schedule for the rest of the season. We're probably going to do one episode a week through the playoffs because it's just not as much football to talk about. And I can't stand to hear Joe's voice any more than I have to. <laughs> so one episode per week, the remainder of the playoffs. We're excited about it. We're excited about Cleveland Browns in 2019, but we still have playoffs and a, a Super Bowl run to talk about. So make sure you're back here every week. Joe. Final thoughts. My final thoughts are Andrew Hawkins claims that he's not a drinker. He's a guy that never consumes alcohol, but it seems like just about every single time I've talked to you in the last month, you've been drunk, including at work, including <laughs> uh, New Year's Eve, including the morning after New Year's Eve, and then the morning after the morning after New Year's <laughs> Eve. So I'm trying to put all these together and figure out why Andrew continues to tell us that he's not a drinker so you're calling thank you very in. much i'm not saying you have a problem but you definitely drink but a you've lot. been drunk for pretty much days. it's pretty much everything you do first thing in the morning before you brush your teeth mountain dew is not alcohol and if it is if it's wrong i don't want to be right nat <laughs> take us out joe hawk yourself <laughs>